Do you want to grab a seat? If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to work through the rest of the chapter, um, starting in verse 6 down to verse down through verse 13. And I'm just going to jump uh, straight in this morning. Last week, Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 to 5 kind of served as a, a summary or a recap of a lot of what the author of Hebrews has said in the first seven chapters. Hebrews 8, starting in verse 6, transitions into uh, his next idea or his next thought. I'm talking a lot about priests. Now we're going to talk about covenants. Um, let me just walk through what Hebrews has shown us up to this point, because it, it becomes important in this conversation about Jesus and the fulfillment of a new covenant. Hebrews chapter 1 through about the first half of chapter 3 was a, a description of who Jesus is, that he is truly God, verse, our chapters 1 and 2, our chapter 1 lays that out, and then that he's truly human, chapter 2 lays that out. The middle of chapter 3 through the middle of chapter 4 is the first big warning in the book of Hebrews, and it's a warning to believe that this you need to believe in this man who is truly God and truly human, and that the importance of that cannot possibly be overstated. Then, from the middle of chapter 4 all the way down through the end of chapter 7, there's this discussion about Jesus as the superior high priest, and tucked into the middle of that is the second warning passage in the book of Hebrews. That's in chapter 6. A warning about what the endurance of your faith says about the veracity of your faith, that if you endure, if you continue in faith, then your faith is, is genuine. What's going to happen from this point forward is that starting in Hebrews 8, or verse 6, we're going to start a conversation about covenants and Jesus as a fulfillment of the new covenant. That's going to work its way all the way through the end of chapter 9. The beginning of chapter 10 is all about Jesus as this perfect sacrifice, and then the end of chapter 10 is the third big warning passage in the book of Hebrews. That's sort of where we're situated. We're beginning this conversation about covenants. And one of the wonderful, wonderful benefits that the book of Hebrews gives us on a big picture scale is that it reinforces this intimate connection that exists between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, the author of Hebrews does much to show us how it is that we should read the Old Testament with an eye toward the New Testament. Jesus is written into every page of the Bible. We say that uh, frequently here. And the author of Hebrews displays just how true that reality is. The author of Hebrews makes allusions or pulls direct quotes, cites passages from every uh, literary form that there is in the Old Testament. Narrative portions, prophetic portions, psalms, uh, poetry passages. He's pulling from the Old Testament constantly in order to show that Jesus and who Jesus is should not be a surprise to us today because that's who Jesus has been and what the Old Testament has been pointing to for all time. The Old Testament passages display for us this symbiotic relationship that exists between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the New Testament. That a proper understanding of Jesus and the gospel aids us in understanding the Old Testament, 
While a proper understanding of the Old Testament helps us correctly frame the life, work, and necessity of Jesus. In this series through Hebrews and in the book of Hebrews, we've been talking a lot about how Jesus is better. And many of those um, comparisons are made between Old Testament realities and then who Jesus is. And there's a danger in pointing those out and making them clear and one that we need to make sure that we're straight on. And so two key statements this morning. The first one is this, and that's that Jesus has not rendered the Old Testament irrelevant. The fact that he is better than Moses, better than angels, better than priests, better than the Old Covenant, better than any Old Testament sacrifice, doesn't mean that those things are irrelevant. In fact, Jesus himself said he didn't come in order to abolish all of that. He came to fulfill it, to fulfill every letter of it. And the second important thing is this, that the breadth of our knowledge of the Old Testament feeds the depth of our adoration of Jesus. You could point to numerous studies that show that biblical literacy in the American church today is very low. I would go so far as to say that a lot of that is Old Testament literacy. The American church's understanding of the Old Testament is low. It's, it's hard. There are places where we can't figure out what we're supposed to do with this. We live in a time where what we really want is the connection and the application, not necessarily just the understanding or the knowledge of the whole story of God's redeeming work. But the better we understand the Old Testament, the better we understand who Jesus is, why we need him, and how he fulfills everything it is that we need. Read with me in Hebrews chapter 8 starting in verse six, but Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, see, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoings and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, He has declared that the first is obsolete, and what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to work in in one direction, and it's this, that Jesus' superior commitment has fulfilled a new covenant and ushered us into a new kingdom. Last week, we saw that just the superiority of who Jesus is in all things. This week, we're going to look at something very specific as it relates to covenants, and then that'll fill itself in over the next two weeks, that Jesus has made this superior commitment on our behalf. And because he's done so, he's fulfilled a new covenant and ushered us into a new kingdom. Let's pray, and we'll jump into that. God, thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, for the chance to, to come together and to worship. God, for the opportunity to be reminded of just what Jesus has done on our behalf. God, maybe for some, it's the opportunity to hear of that for the very first time. God, I pray this morning that uh, a reminder and a acknowledgement, a gratitude for your goodness would be what permeates this room. 
God, your goodness in all of its forms and in all of the ways that you display that to us. God, but specifically, the greatest goodness that you've shown to us, and that is by sending your son in our place to fulfill a commitment that we could not fulfill on our own and thereby to grant to us all of your covenant promises. God, I pray that we would see that clearly this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, our reaction to that would be a response of praise and thanksgiving, a response of gratitude, Lord, that there would be a humility within us that always recognizes that great goodness and keeps it at the forefront of our hearts and minds. Lord, I pray that our reaction to that, Lord, might be that you move in the hearts of some and draw them into a faith-filled response to your grace for the very first time. Lord, would your spirit be here, move among us, work in that way, draw us to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We need to do a little bit of background and context work here this morning. The reason for that is that this passage quotes a long section from the prophet Jeremiah. It does so in order to show that there's this new covenant that has been foretold about for a long time that Israelite people, Jewish people would have known these words from Jeremiah and would have been, should have been, looking forward to the one who would have fulfilled them. The problem for us today is that it presents two contextual issues. Number one, we don't know a ton about covenants. We don't speak in that language anymore. Um, We don't operate in that sort of paradigm or framework. The second is that you may or may not know much about the book of Jeremiah. And so we need to talk about those two things. First, covenants. Let me just define what a covenant is. A covenant is a relational agreement between God and humanity, whereby God makes a promise and asks humanity to make a commitment. A relational agreement between God and humanity. That's key. These aren't just transactional sort of promises. They're relational in nature. And they're not made because God needs something. God doesn't make a covenant with humanity because he's somehow lacking in and of himself and needs something, some commitment from humanity in order to be full and complete. He makes them out of love. Humanity is the one that's lacking, that needs something. And so in love, God promises himself to humanity in a certain way, in a relational way, and in response asks that humanity make a commitment to him. You could look through the Old Testament and find a number of these different covenants. Let me just point some of them out and show the dynamic. There's a covenant with Adam. You can have eternal life. Just don't eat from the tree. That's the promise. You'll live forever. Don't eat from the tree. You actually get the promise in the inverse. You eat from that tree, you will surely die. There's a promise that's made with Noah. In fact, this covenant promise is unique. God promises that he'll never destroy the earth by the flood again. Gives a sign, the rainbow, that this is the means by which you'll know that I will never flood the earth again. And yet he asks Noah to make no commitment. I just won't do it again. In my goodness, in my love, here's a promise, a covenant promise, and I'll establish a sign for you so that you'll know this covenant is true. I'll never destroy the earth by the flood again. Makes a covenant with Abraham. 
There's this promise that Abraham will be blessed and that he will be a blessing to all the nations. The commitment, trust God, raise up his family to do the same. Walk justly before him. There's a covenant with Moses. Moses is the mediator of the covenant. The covenant's actually with the Israelite people. God's promise, he will make Israel, or he will bless Israel, the nation, and make them into a people who will represent him to the world. The commitment he asks for in return, keep the law. I'll spell it out for you. Here's what you need to do. There's a covenant with David. God makes a promise that he will bring one from David's line who will extend peace and blessing to the entire world. The commitment, David is supposed to lead Israel to obey the laws and to worship him. Here's the bottom line on all of those covenants. Humanity never fulfills its commitment. Not a single time. The Old Testament is a running commentary on the ways that God's people break their covenant commitments to him. What we're going to see now is how Jesus changes the dynamic. There's something about the superiority of Jesus that ushers in a new covenant. And in order to move us to that discussion, the author of Hebrews makes a lengthy quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. The point of that passage is to show that this new and superior covenant that's mediated by Jesus is not something unexpected that showed up out of the blue in Bethlehem the day that Jesus was born. It's something that faithful Israelite Jewish people would have been looking forward to because they had been told that it was coming. So a little bit about Jeremiah. Let me just give you kind of a who, what, when, where, why, how on the book of Jeremiah. Who is Jeremiah? He's a prophet. He spoke God's truths to God's people. What did he speak specifically? He speaks a message of both justice and grace, that God is going to bring justice in response to the Israel's covenant breaking. But he's also got a message of grace, that there will be grace for Israel's covenant breaking. When does he do this? His ministry begins before the exile from uh, Judah and Israel, it continues all the way through the fall of Jerusalem and the conquest by the kingdom of Babylon. If you want the specific dates, it's like a 40-year period from 526 BC, or from 626 BC to 587 BC, where he's specifically in Judah. So two kingdoms in Judah after uh, the kingdom splits. North is Israel, south is Judah. Jeremiah is in the south in Judah. His prophecy, though, actually extends to both kingdoms, Israel and Judah. And in the final seven chapters of the book, he's got a word for the nations, for Gentiles, for all the people of the earth. Why? Who, what, when, where, why? His intent is both to uproot and to plant. He's trying to tear down and to build up. He's sent by God to both accuse God's people, open their eyes to their commitment breaking, but also to give them hope. And that's the key. In the book of Jeremiah, hope gets the final word. We need a new covenant, and one is coming. That's the key. How does he do this? Jeremiah chapters 1 through 24, he exposes Israel's idolatry, the fact that they're worshiping other gods. And he does so with this running illusion or allusion to adultery, that Israel's worshiping of other gods would be like a spouse in a marriage being in an adulterous relationship with someone else. They've broken covenant faithfulness, and that's leading to God's righteous and just judgment. That's the first 24 chapters of the book of Jeremiah. Starting in chapter 26, 25 is kind of a little transition. Starting in chapter 26, all the way through chapter 45, 
is the actual description, the details of the attack and the siege of Jerusalem. And then chapters 46 to 52, the end of the book, are a word of hope to the nations of the world. In that siege of Jerusalem, chapters 26, 27, 28, and 29, Jeremiah is pleading with Israel for repentance. And it culminates in this word of hope that, if you've been around churches for a long time, gets used frequently. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster. Plans to give you a future and a hope. Chapters 34 to 45 chronicle the attack itself, but Jeremiah 30 to 33 are the hinge point of the book. It's a statement about Israel's future, that God is going to renew a covenant with them. There's a need for it. He's been talking about that extensively, and there's one coming. If you look at Hebrews 8, starting in verse 8, where the quotation begins, and working through verse 12, you can follow along more or less verbatim with what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. I'll read it from Jeremiah. You can look at it in Hebrews. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master. This is the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration. For I will forgive their iniquity and will never again remember their sin. This covenant that's coming, God's going to heal Israel's rebellion. His faithfulness, rather than humanity's unfaithfulness, will prevail. That description of hope, that description of a new covenant, serves as the explanation of what Jeremiah says in 29.11. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. That statement from Jeremiah 29.11, which can get ripped out of its context, as if it were to mean that God is going to make us all wealthy and prosperous, that he's going to just guarantee us a life of ease and happiness. That's not what Jeremiah is talking about in Jeremiah 29, 11. He's looking forward to a satisfaction for a hope, for a prosperity that is so much deeper than what your circumstances in a broken world could ever possibly give to you. Jeremiah is looking forward to a hope and a future and a prosperity that's rooted in the fact that God is going to heal all the brokenness that has existed within Israel's covenant unfaithfulness. That's the promise. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is the explanation that helps us understand what 29, 11 means. God's promising a new covenant. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. God's brought covenants through them, but he says, this one's not gonna be like those because now we have Jesus. We're looking forward to Jesus. They didn't know his name when Jeremiah gave the prophecy, but that's what they're looking forward to. He's going to mediate something new. Jesus hasn't rendered the Old Testament irrelevant. He's fulfilled it. Our breadth of knowledge of the Old Testament fuels the depth of our adoration of Jesus. There's something in this that should help us love Jesus more. That's why the author of Hebrews uses it. So let's walk through verses 6 to 13. 
Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. To that degree, he's the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. He has a superior ministry than any of those Old Testament priests. That's what we've seen in chapters 4 through 7. Their ministry was at an altar that was a copy of the real thing in heaven. It was consumed with sacrifices that the law dictated, but Jesus is mediating this better covenant, a better relational agreement between God and humanity based on better promises. We'll get to those promises in a moment. Jesus conducts that ministry from a superior place. He's not in a tabernacle. He's not in a temple. He is in the very throne room of God. Verses 7 and 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a new one. Specifically, the covenant in mind here is the one that God mediated through Moses that included humanity's commitment to upholding the law and God's promise to make his people representatives to all the earth. Forces the question, did God make a bad deal? It was faultless. Or if it had been faultless, then we wouldn't have needed a new one. So did God make a bad deal? Did he strike a bad agreement? No. Verse 8 explains. Finding fault with his people. It's humanity that dropped the ball. The fault is not with God. It's with our inability to uphold our side of the covenant relationship. Our inability to keep our commitments. Walk back through those covenants that God made with Adam. You, you can live eternally, just don't eat from the tree. Hey, that sounds great, God, but that looks pretty good. And sin enters the world. Makes an agreement with Noah, asks for no commitment from him, but what happens right after the flood, the next story in the Bible, there's humanity trying to build themselves a tower so that they can be like God climb their way up to him. Makes an agreement with Abraham. You'll be blessed and be a blessing to all the nations. Teach your family to have faith like I do. Look, if you want to not feel quite so bad about the dysfunction in your family, start reading in Genesis chapter 12 and just read through the end of the book. There's more brokenness and sin and dysfunction on display there than in just about any family line that you could come up with. It's not that we should look at that and say, hey, I'm doing pretty good. It's that we should look at that and say, this must be the normal state of humanity, that brokenness just runs rampant, even through Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, patriarchs of the faith. Abraham couldn't uphold his end of the commitment. Moses couldn't inspire the Israelites to uphold their end of the commitment. God gives Moses the law, mediates his covenant with Israel. I'm going to make you representative to the ends of the earth. Keep my law. He goes down. Command number one, no other gods before me. Not worship anything else. Okay, that sounds good, but we melted down our earrings to make this calf. What do we do now? It's immediate. Humanity's fault is instant. David couldn't lead his people to do it, and it results in the exile and the coming of prophets like Jeremiah who say, this sin is a problem, and God is going to justly punish it. The issue isn't with covenant mediators. 
The issue is not with God himself. The issue is with the sin that lurks in all of us dating back to Adam. Finding fault with his people is not something God has to look very hard for. We mostly wear it directly on the surface of who we are. It screams out from each and every one of us in our sin nature. It's not that God made a bad promise. It's that humanity could not uphold its commitment in those covenant agreements. And so in verses, or the second half of verse 8 down to verse 12, we get the better promises that were talked about in verse 6. The days are coming, says the Lord. I'm going to make a new covenant with Israel and with Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. That's Moses. He said, I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. There's the fault. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. Four promises. I will put my laws into their minds. God will write the law on our hearts. That's promise number one. Promise number two, I will be their God and they will be my people. God will take us to be his people. Each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. Promise number three, God will give us knowledge of himself. And then verse 12, for I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. Promise number four, God will grant forgiveness of our sin. The author of Hebrews wants us to understand that these new covenant promises mediated by Jesus were something that the Israelite people knew about. They'd been looking forward to them. This new covenant didn't spring up out of nowhere when Jesus was born. He came in order to seal it to bring to us all of those promises, as well as all the promises of previous covenants that God had ever made. That's what we get in Jesus. Verse 13 then, and by saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. God's granted us all of these promises, as well as all the promises of the previous covenants, while simultaneously upholding all of humanity's previous commitments. That's the key in Jesus. Why does it matter that he's truly God and truly human? Because he's uniquely positioned to both fulfill all God's promises and bring them to us as being truly God, and also to uphold all of humanity's commitments and maintain our end of the covenant agreement. That's what he can do because he's truly human. He's able to do both sides in an entirely unique way. Jesus has done that for you. As truly God, he brought the fulfillment of all God's promises to all of God's people. We have knowledge of Hebrews chapter one, the exact expression of God's nature because we can see it in Jesus. We have forgiveness of sin, Hebrews chapter 10, because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. We are taken to be God's people when we believe on Jesus and are brought into him. We get that by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The law is written on our hearts, thanks to the Holy Spirit, that Jesus sent. As truly man, he's gone before us as our perfect representative in order to uphold every commitment that humanity needed to uphold. He was like us in every way, but without sin. And that means that he is entirely without covenant unfaithfulness. 
where Adam, Noah, Moses, David, Abraham, and every human being before, after, or in between has fallen short. Jesus has passed with flying color. You don't need to be the one who upholds the covenant. You don't need to be the one who fulfills the commitment. That is obsolete. Jesus has done it for you. You don't need to hold your breath waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises. He's brought them to you in all of their fullness and in all of their power. The people of the Old Testament in Jeremiah's time, they were waiting for the arrival of something new. Hearing this prophecy, looking forward, waiting for something different, but there's no more waiting because Jesus has brought it. Raymond Brown, a, a Brown, a commentator, says it this way. The old covenant and law were like a signpost to direct humanity. The new covenant supplies the power to make the journey. The old covenant was naturally limited, temporary, and partial, but the new covenant is unrestricted in its power, eternal in its duration, complete in its effects. Jesus upheld humanity's commitment, brought to humanity all of God's promises. That's why verse 6 says he's got a superior ministry to the degree that he mediates a better covenant established on better promises. Jesus' superior commitment has fulfilled a new covenant and ushered us into a new kingdom. By virtue of being truly God and truly man, he's mediated this new covenant by both fulfilling all its promises and upholding all of its commitments. Think about it. The covenant made with Adam. You could have eternal life. Just don't eat the fruit. Adam ate the fruit. Death entered the world. Jesus comes, never once eats the fruit of sin. And what do we have as a result? The opportunity for eternal life. It's a promise with Abraham of being a blessing to the nations. Promise with Moses of being a representative to the nations. Promise through David that a son would come through his line. Jesus has given us all those. We have in Jesus a promise of the knowledge of God, promise of forgiveness of sin, promise of being one of God's people. We have the promise of having his law written on our hearts. All of those are ours, but there's one big if attached to it. All of those are yours by the grace of God if you receive them through faith in Jesus. They are not of yourself in any way. You cannot make them yours. Look back at the passage from Hebrews. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, verse 8. Verse 10, I will make the house of Israel. I will put laws into their minds. I will be their God. I will forgive their sins. I will never remember their wrongdoings. He will, he will. He will, he will. And then in Jesus, he has. Nothing left for you to do. He's done it on your behalf, fulfilled all the commitments, extended all the promises. This is the key. All we bring to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's it. You didn't walk in with anything else. He will, he will, he will, he will, because you brought the one thing that made it necessary. Jeremiah is not the only prophet from that era who talked about this new covenant that would come. Ezekiel did as well, and he uses slightly different language, but it's still the same sort of forward-looking promise. 
I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and your idols. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you, cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my commands. I will save you from your uncleanness. I will, I will, I will, I will. It's in there eight times. Brothers and sisters, we cannot forget that we brought nothing to the table in order to make our salvation happen. Not one bit. Ephesians 2, for you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from work so that no one can boast. Titus 3, 4, and 5, when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. This is the gospel we rejoice in. God has done everything in Jesus to fulfill his promises and uphold our commitments. He then gives us a new heart, writes his laws upon our heart, and by grace causes us to crave the things of righteousness and of his kingdom. That is where we're headed in the coming weeks. That the fact that this new covenant has been fulfilled and the fact that we can receive all of those promises does something radical inside of us. God will fulfill his promise that his people will be representatives of him to the world, to the nations. And part of that means that the way that we live marks us as members of his kingdom. That's where we're headed in the next couple of weeks. The implications of that are staggering. And it ought to be what distinguishes the people of God's kingdom from the rest of the world. Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the dominion of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We brought nothing to our salvation except for the sin that made it necessary. Hebrews 8, 6 to 13. What's this better covenant? What are these better promises? What is this superior ministry? It's that in God's goodness, he extended all of his promises to us and fulfilled all of our commitments in the person of Jesus Christ. And we can't forget that. We gather on Sundays at church, not primarily so that we can get four application points for how to live a better life or look a little more Christian. We gather together on Sunday mornings, not primarily so that we can be inspired or so that we can be uplifted. We gather together on Sunday mornings as a church, whether in this building or somewhere else globally, so that we can remember the superiority of Jesus's commitment. That he upheld everything that we were supposed to do but couldn't. And because of that has made it possible for us to take hold of all of God's promises. That's why we come together on Sunday mornings. Let me close with two illustrations. There's an important football game later today. I want to encourage you to watch for something very specific. No one, I don't think, in all of the world, in any profession, gets excited about someone else messing up their profession as NFL defensive backs. No one is more confident that they did something wonderful when someone else messes up than a corner on an NFL football field. Quarterback throws a wildly uncatchable pass, defensive back. <laughs> As if they did something remarkable. 
wide receiver, more or less uncovered, drops a pass thrown straight to him, you would think that the defensive back had made a highlight reel play. Similarly, our flesh wants us to believe that we have done something significant in achieving our salvation. We have not. Our flesh wants us to believe that one day we're going to stand before holy, sovereign, almighty God of the universe in all of our wonderfulness, and he's going to look at us and say, you really crushed it down there. Come on into heaven. Not the case. We brought nothing to that except for our sin. And in humility, we look to Jesus who brought everything that we needed in order for our covenant commitment to be fulfilled. Second one is this. I'm going to read it. It's a story about the first doctor that ever did a heart transplant. It says this. On one occasion, Dr. Christian Barnard, the first surgeon ever to do a heart transplant, impulsively asked one of his patients, Philip, would you like to see your old heart? At 8 p.m. on a subsequent evening, the men stood in a room of the Groot Schur Hospital in Cape Town, South Africa. Dr. Barnard went up to a cupboard, took down a glass container, and handed it to Philip. Inside that container was Philip's old heart. For a moment, he stood there in stunned silence, the first man in history ever to hold his own heart in his hands. Finally, he spoke and for 10 minutes plied Dr. Barnard with technical questions. Then he turned to take a final look at the contents of the glass container, walked out of the room and said, so there is my heart that caused me so much trouble. I wish to never see it again. Someone who needs a heart transplant only brings one thing into the operating room, a faulty heart. They don't bring the ability to make it better. They don't bring the heart that could save their lives. They bring the one thing that could cause them death. Such is the case with us in our salvation. You don't bring with you the means to fulfill the responsibilities or the commitments necessary to save yourself. You don't bring with you the means by which Jesus could have done something on your behalf. You don't even bring with you the loveliness that would be required for God to set his affection upon you. What you bring with you is the thing that ought to have sealed your death. A faulty heart. And then because of Jesus, God gives you a new one. He gives you a new one. And there should be only two possible reactions to that. Number one, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, you have received God's goodness to you. And so together we respond in grateful, thankful worship. That's what worship is. Just a response. And sometimes you come in on a Sunday morning and you think to yourself, you know what? Life is in a certain spot or my circumstances are such that I don't really feel like worshiping. You might be there this morning. Brothers and sisters, God has been good to you a thousand different ways today alone. But even if you were to be able to write off all of those as if they weren't true or as if your heart just could not grasp them, then we come together on Sunday mornings, maybe not to sing out of the overflow of joy in our heart, but to remind ourselves 
of the ultimate goodness of God. That in Jesus Christ, you got a new heart because the one came who could both uniquely as fully God grant you all of God's promises and uniquely as fully man uphold all of your commitments and give you the heart transplant that you required. The other reaction to this would be to say, the only thing I'm bringing to the table right now is my sin. And I need the one who could provide salvation. If you're in that position this morning, I want to encourage you, have a conversation with somebody, maybe someone that you came with, maybe someone on our staff, maybe just the stranger sitting next to you. The odds are highly, highly likely that that person sitting next to you, stranger or not, can tell you about the goodness of who God is and walk you through what it means to repent of your sin and receive Jesus Christ for salvation. He made a superior commitment on our behalf. We receive that commitment by faith. We respond to that commitment in worship. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing together.